0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. And this week, as the Senate debated removing President Trump from office via impeachment, the political calendar loomed in the background.
1: Iowa feeds the world.
0: That's right. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Or, okay, it's the moment that people like me have been waiting for. On Monday night, the race for 2020 officially begins in Iowa.
2: They take it very seriously. I mean, that's a cliche that you hear a lot from people who are talking about the caucuses, but those that are politically engaged take it very seriously.
3: There is an excitement and an anticipation in the lead-up to the caucus. If you win the Iowa caucuses, you have about an 80% chance of going on to be the nominee.
0: Iowa. Population, 3 million. The state is rural and whiter than the average, and it sparks a debate every cycle. Should this state be the first to caucus?
4: I personally
0: do not think that we have the best process of choosing.
3: It's just not good. It
0: makes me feel good to know that uh, Iowa is uh, the leader in terms of showing the country Who is the candidate?
2: Every single cycle, there are questions as, why the heck are we letting Iowa continue to be the first in the nation state?
0: And it's not just because Iowa doesn't reflect the diversity of the nation as a whole, but because caucuses are an archaic, confusing, and messy process. And not just for Democrats. Do you remember this moment from 2012?
4: Too close to call. That's where things stand in the Iowa caucuses. Game on.
0: He's worked very hard in Iowa. We uh, we also feel it's been a great victory for us here.
3: Iowa elections officials have reversed course. Initial results had Romney winning by eight votes. Now, officials say Santorum topped him by 34 votes out of more than 120,000 cast.
0: Now, for Democrats, what happened here in 2016 is still fresh in people's minds. Hillary Clinton, the favorite to win, did eke out a victory. I stand here tonight. Breathing a big sigh of relief. Thank you, Iowa. But a win by three-tenths of one percentage point wasn't the unequivocal triumph the establishment expected. People of Iowa have sent a very profound message to the political establishment. And there were allegations of fraud. Because
4: okay, people could have left, so that's not after we heard so why wouldn't they recount? I just be wanted to be active.
0: To that. And that 2016 experience still colors the way a lot of folks see the caucuses today. While we were out in Iowa last week, I sat down with Matt Paul in his office in Des Moines. Matt ran the Clinton campaign in Iowa in 2016 and is now a Democratic strategist in the state. I asked him to describe what he saw happening on the ground in Iowa back in 2016.
3: we had seen tremendous movement Senator Sanders uh, had had closed very strong from Thanksgiving through the new year he continually was making gains we were seeing some erosion but he he was making gains and so we knew late December uh, that we had to we had to close strong and so you know we got on the phone to Brooklyn got more travel got more candidate time got stronger surrogates made some tweaks to the paid uh, messaging and were able to hang on here very close very late night but hard fought it was fair and uh she was the first woman to win the iowa caucuses and the first then went on to become the first woman to be the nominee
0: yeah it seemed to be that the frustration from 2016 certainly on the bernie sanders side was This process is too opaque. And there is a sense from a lot of people who were, especially those supporting Bernie Sanders, that maybe the process wasn't that fair.
3: If you look at at 2016, where that race started, where Senator Sanders was polling at 2%, then you fast forward to a week before the caucuses, where you had a real He had... He had caught up, essentially, with one of the world's most well-known individuals. If that isn't fair, I don't know what is. I think Iowa has persevered and has remained first because we've been willing to take a look at how to improve the Iowa caucuses. In 1972, they were using payphones to call in the results. I think it is fair. I think there that uh there's example after example of Iowan stepping up to improve the caucus to increase accessibility like we're doing this year to increase transparency like we're doing this year with the additional reporting of the initial alignment and the final alignment how many people are in the room and who are they for as well as the state delegate equivalent the final result Uh, and i think we have to continue to do that and be and be strong enough to take these questions and continually find ways to make sure that the caucuses are fair.
0: After the 2016 election, the DNC overhauled their nominating process. Reforms were made to everything from how candidates qualify for debates to superdelegates and, yes, to the caucuses, all with the goal of greater transparency. So, what does this mean for Iowa voters and the candidates who are trying to woo them? For that, we needed to talk to the expert. So, we drove to an office across the street from the Des Moines airport. If it weren't for the big blue D sign in front of it, you probably would drive right by the small squat building. But when we got there, we found...
5: Troy Price, the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party.
0: Now, before we get to what's new this year, let me explain one defining feature of the caucuses that hasn't changed. In order to win any delegates, a candidate has to hit something called the viability threshold. Mm. I know, it sounds intimidating, right? And it kind of is. Here's how this works. 7 o'clock on Monday night, Iowa Democrats gather at one of about 1,700 precincts across the state. Think of things like high school gyms, church basements, community centers. Soon, they're asked to vote with their feet for one of the Democratic candidates. Voters stand with the group of voters committed to a certain candidate. Then, they count how many people are in each group. If the candidate you choose has fewer than 15% of the total votes in the room, your candidate is no longer viable.
3: Game over, man. It's game over.
0: Don't worry, you still get another chance to vote. You're given the opportunity to realign with another candidate, or you can remain uncommitted. The magic number for viability? Again, 15%. And remember, this is all happening out in the open. In bigger precincts, it's hot and stuffy and loud. And public. Okay, back to Troy Price. I asked him to walk us through some of the changes to how the caucuses will run this
5: year. It's really grassroots democracy in action. Like people, uh, campaigns will uh, have someone that they designate as their precinct captain. So when you're traveling around the state, you'll hear campaigns saying, hey, we need a precinct captain in this area or that area. And so the precinct captain is really that campaign's representative in the room. So when there are, after the first alignment, People will go into um, uh, those precinct captains and others will go and try to persuade those who are uh, not who are in non-viable groups. They're going to go and try to convince them, you know, whether that's talking about policy, whether that's promising them a delegate spot to the county convention, whether that's, uh, you know, promising to come over and mow their yard. But like it's a real it's a conversation. And I think that's the thing about this process that I think folks don't quite understand. First of all, these are party meetings these are not just you know some sort of uh, event that happens these are actually party meetings we do these every 2 years and secondly it's really a it's a community meeting like these are uh, you know neighbors, loved ones, friends, uh, all in your neighborhood coming together and having a conversation about who should lead our party, who should lead um, our country, and so and what issues are most important to uh, to that neighborhood. Like I said, it's really grassroots democracy in action, and uh, it's it's a
0: lot of fun. so who's keeping track of the number of people who are showing up and registering those people? It seems to me that that could also be problematic it's one thing if you're in a small precinct and 50 people show up it's another thing if 1200 people show up and trying to keep track of all those
5: so we have voter rolls we print off the entire a list of every registered democrat in the state and that gets distributed out to each precinct but you can
0: register at Mm -hmm. you can register there even if you're not registered as a democrat right now correct
5: yeah that's correct we have same day registration for the caucus process and so um but we have you know One of the things that we've been really focused on this year is making sure that these caucuses are most accessible, our most transparent uh, caucuses that we've done. Part of that is making sure that we have um, a smooth process in the uh, check-in process. So one of the things we've done this year, for example, is we offered early check-in. Folks had to sign up for it by uh, January 17th. But then they had, uh, you know, they basically print something off and they're able to, it's like a fast pass at like six flags. They can just uh, skip the line get into uh, the caucus site earlier for, um, but We've been studying and looking and making sure that we have the infrastructure we need in all of our precincts. So we know which precincts are going to be the large, you know, the largest precincts. So uh, my precinct, for example, in 2016 was one of the largest in Polk County. We had almost 900 people at it. The precinct that I grew up in, where my parents live, had 25 people at it. Right. So we can't give the same treatment to both precincts. So we have had, you know, we know which precincts are, traditionally have large caucus uh, turnout, large caucus attendance, and so we have been planning accordingly to make sure that we have the volunteers we need to do the check-in process, to run the process smoothly, so that'll be a success on caucus night.
0: In listening to some folks recall their caucus experiences, specifically from 2016, there was one um, caucus attendee who said he was you know, signing people in on a pizza box or a mm-hmm. piece of uh, paper towel. Again, that seems really dangerous if you're trying to get an accurate count that
5: well, what I assume that they what I assume they're referring to is voter registration. Um, one of the challenges that happened on both sides of the aisle in both party caucuses in 2016 was there were not a voter enough voter registration forms sent out. And so folks were just not expecting as large of a turnout as they saw in 2016. Certainly on our side, but that is also true on the uh, Republican side as well. And so uh, they ran out of voter registration forms, we had people we needed to, to register. So, yeah, so we got permission from the county auditors that evening to, that we could use uh, backs of pieces of paper, scrap paper for voter registration forms that evening. That's part of the lessons learned from 2016. And we haven't had that problem in the past. It just, people were not expecting as large of a turnout which you know it's a good thing to have that many people interested in the process so this year we've sent out a hundred thousand voter registration forms across the state um which would be if we had a hundred thousand people use them that'd be the largest probably single shift in party registration in our state's history um so we are uh so we are more than prepared and listen like that's what i want folks to understand is that we have been working on this since well honestly since the day i got elected in july of 20, uh, 2017 but since elections Day in 2016, we have been um, laser focused on making sure that th- everyone has a positive caucus experience from caucus goers, media, campaigns, etc. And so we have been really focused on that. That's one of the reasons why we have put in a lot of the reforms that we've done. It's one of the reasons why we started locking locations in as early as we can. Uh, you know, a part of the challenge we had in 2016 is that Democrats, more often than not, had these smaller rooms. The Republicans were expected to have the bigger turnout. So we didn't get the largest rooms in each precinct that is different this year. We have been focused on that. And honestly, in some cases we're moving a caucus out of its precinct because they may not have a space big enough to handle the size of the crowd. So we've been focused on trying to make sure that, uh, from the entire experience goes well for people from voter registration forms to the early check-in process, to the size of the room uh, to the trainings that we've done. We've been really focused on making sure that our precinct chairs, particularly with the new rules this year, that our precinct chairs um, understand what's going to happen. And so we've had a a very, uh, uh, rigorous training training program this year um, to make sure that our caucus chairs are ready as so well. So that
0: every person at every precinct, there's someone at every precinct who has gone through this training.
5: That is what we're working on, yeah. Okay.
0: The other big, big change from the caucuses for the caucuses this year from the last caucus is the fact that you will be releasing the total number of votes cast mm-hmm. and as well as the delegate equivalent. So can you talk to us about what that's going to look like, and how voters, media, the public is going to get this information.
5: Mm-hmm so we'll be sharing uh as results come in from the precincts we do a check on the back end just to verify the results and then we will be releasing them by precinct um over the course of the evening on a rolling basis over the course of the evening this year uh, we are releasing more information than we haven't before uh state delegate equivalence has always been our measure and sde as we call it um for folks out there to understand it is sde is basically how much the because at your caucus you're electing delegates to your county convention but each county then at their county convention elects delegates to their district and state convention and so uh basically the way to figure to look at that is how much that delegate you're electing on caucus night is worth of a whole state delegate so and that has always been the best measure of how our national delegates are going to break down so that's how we have done this since the 70s. And that's the numbers that get reported on caucus night is SDE. But in addition to that, then uh, the DNC uh, rules this year required us to release first expression of preference. So that's where everyone was when they were in the standing in their corners at the beginning of the evening. We decided that we wanted to make sure that we are putting, um, uh, the, to give a full uh, picture of the evening, we're also going to release where people were at the end of the evening. So where they were at first alignment, where they were after everyone was done moving around the room. Those are the three numbers we're releasing. Like I said, they'll be released by precinct as we get them after we've gone through a verification check. The thing to remember, though, is that this is a contest for delegates. What we are uh, working, or what you know people care about, is who's going to win in Milwaukee? Who's going to have the 1,991 delegates necessary to become the Democratic nominee? And so that is the SDE is going to continue to be the best measure to look at. Um, it's going to be because that's going to give you the best sense of how our national delegates are going to break down.
0: Troy Price is the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. Okay, now that we have a sense for how the caucuses work, for better or for worse, I wanted to find out how Iowa has been able to keep such a tight grip on the primary calendar. And lucky for us, there's actually a podcast all about this. It's called Caucusland. I sat down with Clay Masters, co-host of Caucusland, and the lead political reporter in his studio at Iowa Public Radio.
2: Every single cycle, there are questions as why the heck are we letting Iowa continue to be the first in the nation state? And we're hearing that. It feels even louder than it has in times past. One, because as you bring up the diversity issue, we're not a very diverse state. Uh, party leaders here for the Republicans and the Democrats they're united in wanting to keep Iowa first. Uh, the Republican Party chair will boast that this is the state that delivered the victory for Barack Obama that kind of signaled the rest of the country that well if Iowa says it's time to elect uh, a, a black president then you know maybe we'll open our eyes a little bit more. So there are arguments that while Iowa is not as representative of the rest of the country it it still can you know chart a path for someone party chairs will also tell you that Iowa is part of the four early carve-out states. And so, you know, together, it's the first in the nation. I mean, you're shaking your head. You're aware of are aware. We've, we've all arguments. been hearing
0: the spin, right? <laughs> yeah. But, at, but as, the, as the Democratic Party becomes a party that is younger, certainly have more voters of color, overwhelmingly female, does it, does it make sense for the Democrats to kick off their nominating process in a state like Iowa?
2: Well, it's not my job to answer that question. (laughs) But I mean, you think about Julian Castro uh, before he dropped out of the race. Some of his last ads that he was running were about how Iowa is not after 2020. We should reexamine this process.
3: And I've said very bluntly that it's time for a state other than Iowa to go first so that our nominating process actually
5: reflects the diversity of our country or of our party.
2: Another thing too here is just that nobody's come up with a better idea. I mean that's a big thing as well is that when people when other states start to realize, oh this isn't run by the state, you know, this is this these this is largely reliant on volunteers. This is something that has since 1972, 76 has really gotten its roots dug into this process. And so until somebody comes up with a better idea, I mean like Until somebody has the roadmap to make a more diverse state go first, I don't
0: see it happening. For the first time, the public will get to see how many people came to the caucuses, who they supported in the first round of voting, who they supported in the second round of voting, and then what the delegate equivalent is. It's really confusing, even to people like us who follow this for a living. Mm -hmm. How... Worried are Democrats that these new rules are gonna make it even harder for skeptical watchers of this process to take the winner of this as the as the real winner.
2: Right. They're worried. I mean they're not gonna say that to your face, but there has to be concern within the Democratic Party that everything goes as well as humanly possible. We were talking about the issue that people have with Iowa because of its lack of diversity, there are huge issues that people have with Iowa just because the caucus process is confusing and it's limiting in who can participate. There are 97 satellite caucuses that are taking place. This is ways that people can participate if they can't actually make it out to their precinct on caucus night. But it still is if people can't get a daycare situation for their child, if there are... Uh, people that are maybe overseas and don't have an opportunity to be a part of these satellite caucuses, then it's not the most inclusive thing because this isn't going in and filling in an oval or pushing a button. This is physically figuring out where you're going to stand in the room and uh, support in the primary. And on top of all of the confusion that there already is in the caucuses, this time around, like you said, they're going to be releasing these results, different results. And so at the end of the night, in years past you just kind of knew okay this was who got the, the delegates this is who's going to go on as the winner but we're going to see where that initial support was before that 15% threshold was hit and people had to break up and then we're going to see those numbers and then the delegates and so candidates campaigns are going to be able to spin this you know if in, unless there is a very overwhelmingly clear winner there's going to be a lot of mud that is going to really muck up the process or could potentially
0: it could potentially be there are multiple winners on election night and then those candidates go into New Hampshire declaring themselves
2: yeah. the winner. And there's this old saying here that uh, David Yepsen, the old uh, Des Moines Register political reporter, put out that, you know, there are three tickets out of Iowa. Well, there might be five or six out of Iowa this time. We, we don't know with a field this big and the polls showing everything so close.
0: How are you going to be reporting then as as a reporter here in Iowa, you are going to tell folks that night the next morning what how are you basing the here 's who won the caucus
2: well I mean we are going to be talking about i mean it'll it's going to be interesting for the first time to be able to see just how those decisions were made i'm on caucus night i 'm going to be in a precinct caucus, watching the chaos take place. I'm planning to stake out at a, uh, a suburban caucus in Des Moines where there's been a lot of growth, and suburbs are battlegrounds here in Iowa for state legislature races. And so I will be, I mean, night of, I'm going to be closely watching what's going on in these rooms and seeing if there is overcrowding. I mean, at Polk County, which is Des Moines. Uh, they've done a really good job of trying to find bigger locations to house some of these caucus sites because in Johnson County, which is where Iowa City is, that's one of the, that is the most blue county, if you will. And in the heart of Iowa City, there are concerns about overcrowding, that there just won't be enough space for everybody to come in. You want to talk about a non-inclusive way of bringing everybody in, tell them that you don't have enough room for them. And so we're not only going to be watching how these kind of decisions were being made throughout the night in those first three releases, but really just seeing how the process is working as the as the state party is trying to be more inclusive and bring more people uh, into caucus.
0: Clay Masters, thanks for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, Amy.
0: Iowa is probably best known as the place for upsets. There are plenty of examples of frontrunners getting toppled on caucus night. Think Obama defeating Clinton there in 2008. One candidate that's done particularly well there and surprised many this time around is former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Now, despite the fact that he's the youngest candidate in the race, he's not been able to generate the level of interest and enthusiasm among young voters that Bernie Sanders has. So while we are in Ames, Iowa, home of Iowa State University, I reached out to Megan Johansson, a junior studying accounting.
4: So I'm part of ISU Students for Pete. Basically, we have weekly meetings where we talk about what we've accomplished during the week, that kind of thing, compare our own progress to cities around us, kind of have like that fun competitiveness between each other. We do canvassing on campus, especially in like the free speech zones, that kind of thing. We've had Mayor Pete here a couple of times uh, so far, which has been... A couple of times. Yeah. So he was just here last Monday as well, um, as in the fall semester once, um, and the turnout just keeps getting bigger. So it's really exciting to see that happen being able to put on a really cool event and help other people get to see his message.
0: So what attracted you to Pete? And talk to us a little bit about this. It's somewhat of a stereotype that college students are really into Bernie.
4: So the first time I even saw Mayor Pete was at the very first Dem debate when I watched that. I was just trying to see what was going on. I had no idea who he was, didn't know his name, nothing. Like I had to look it up afterwards, but I was just blown away by how he listened to the other side's viewpoints, didn't interrupt people. He was one of the very few people on stage who let others finish their sentences. When he was cut off, he just let himself be cut off. And then following him from there on, seeing his policies, his education, how well spoken he is, those kinds of things have led me to continue to support him. And he's someone that really incites like hopefulness in me. That's something I've said all along is he gives me a sense of hope. As for Bernie, I like Bernie. He speaks his mind. He's not afraid to say something that not everyone's going to like. Some people are worried for how long he's been in, uh, like, the political area and those kinds of things. But then others see that as a strength as well. I think that level of trustworthiness with him is something that draws a lot of students in. Um, he's kind of like the fun grandpa.
0: As you're talking to your friends and doormates and others, how are how do you think they are looking at this Democratic primary?
4: Mm-hmm. Um a big thing is I try not to talk politics too much personally because I know a lot of – I was never interested in, in it until this cycle. But just – it has to do with our everyday lives all the time. Um So seeing from their perspectives, they want someone who's real, that can not only has big ideas, but like they're actually going to work. I feel like that's been a really big thing I've heard from friends is, yeah, they have really cool big ideas. That'd be great if they work, but I don't see that happening. So I don't know if I can support them.
0: So how do you interact with students about this on campus?
4: You stop people as they're walking by. Hey, do you have a minute? Would you like to talk about Mayor Pete? Have you ever heard about Mayor Pete? Are you worried about this kind of uh, issue currently? Would you like to hear a policy on it? Just being open and when they say no, that's okay. But a lot of people are excited to hear about these things as well because they want change. Is there
0: an issue or a couple issues that are really animating students here on campus.
4: Mm -hmm. Even just today, I saw students asking if people were worried about climate change. That's a huge one. We live in really cold weather. Climate change is just going to make it colder. I know a lot of people think, oh, it's climate change, temperatures are going to go up. Well, they also have to come back down and they're going to come back down hard. And we don't want that to impact us here. It's going to impact farmers and we live in the Midwest. So that's huge. So climate change is definitely a big one.
0: Megan Johansson is a student at Iowa State University in Ames.
3: Donald Trump has made history in 2024 and not in the way he was hoping. But now that the former president is the first to be convicted on criminal charges, will it matter in any way? Can it really lead to accountability for the former president? And will it change the vibe among that small sliver of undecided or unmotivated voters? I'm Kai Wright. Join me to talk about these questions on the next Notes from America. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. At the top of the show, we heard from Democratic strategist Matt Paul, who ran the Clinton campaign in Iowa in 2016. Someone who's run campaigns in Iowa, Matt knows better than almost anyone what voters in the state are looking for just days before the caucuses. If
3: you win the Iowa caucuses in recent history, you have about an 80% chance of going on to be the nominee. This will be an important caucus, maybe the most important that we've had but the great thing about the caucus is it's fair it allows for representation of people in rural places and more urban places and provides a a fair shot for these candidates come in and make their case and it allows voters to get closer to these candidates and to push them on these issues and push them on their their policies and um uh i don't i I i would expect a close night Um, But there's always a surprise. Just like we've had surprises in this leadership in this race, there could be a surprise on caucus night.
0: When you're talking to folks, voters around the state, as they're trying to think through who they're going to caucus for, is there something that ties all of those undecided voters together? Or is it really that each voter is struggling with something different?
3: They desperately want to win. Chief among their concerns is, who can beat this guy?
0: In these next number of days... How are they going to make that determination?
3: I've not seen a caucus cycle like this where you have at this late hour voters thinking in groups of candidates, not necessarily picking their favorite or their their first or second choice. We're now into a gaggle of candidates, uh, which uh, I think is really interesting.
0: People covering politics and sports like to use the term momentum, even though it's kind of a hackneyed phrase. But there is usually a sense when you go into caucus night, somebody has this sort of energy behind them. And especially when you're talking about getting folks to show up on a freezing cold Monday and stick around for hours, having enthusiastic support behind you is important. One of the knocks against Joe Biden has been he's got – people's heads, but he doesn't have the heart, right? He doesn't have the enthusiasm behind that. Judge, at least recently, had all this energy behind him. Is that what you're seeing play out here? And how do you think that matters, essentially?
3: But again, because this has been so close, these things, these, the momentum behind these candidates has had a very short shelf life. So whereas, you know, you would, you would want to sustain that momentum and do what you can to keep building on that and then get to endorsements and then get to, you know, a closing sort of argument here, they're still trying to find areas of distinction with the other candidates. So this cycle has been unique in that we haven't seen the traditional, I'm going to provide a closing argument that is strong and that is crisp and clear that helps motivate my base and churn them out on caucus night.
0: The one last thing we're noticing now, candidates really sharpening either their differences with the other candidates in the race. And in some cases, it's getting a little more direct. We have some direct confrontation, whether it's Biden and Sanders. We obviously have the Sanders and Warren back and forth. How do how do voters here perceive that there's been this talk that if somebody goes negative or if they're perceived as being too negative, they're going to lose support. And it benefits the person who's outside of that fight.
3: Yeah, you've got to be you've got to be careful with that. The nature of the contrast is really important. It's okay to disagree on the policy, propose a different worldview, but to get nasty uh, does not work. Do you think we're at
0: the area. getting nasty, or do you think this is just sort of typical differences that we're I think
3: seeing this is, now? This is the pressure of this race hitting these candidates. You really in the last you, know, you talk about what happens in the final stretch. It's all about candidate performance. Their organizations are up and running. They're training. They've trained their volunteers. The there is inertia and and continuous momentum in the campaign now it's what's the news how does news happen it happens if the candidates screw up you know alternatively if they have a great moment uh, a unique moment that they're all trying to have right now frankly a viral moment uh then you have attention so i think I would expect you to be tough and stand up for your ideas and your your record and your career, but they want you to do it uh, in a professional in a professional manner, not in a nasty got you moment.
0: Right, right. To make those distinctions with Correct. the people that everybody knows. Correct. And so, if you're Elizabeth Warren and you're talking about being a female in the race, right. maybe played that she should have played that up earlier.
3: Maybe I thought I thought, uh, you know, if you walk through their their unique advantages, one thing I thought she did very well was to drive home this baseline message of uh, don't think of me as Harvard. Think of me as Norman, Oklahoma. And should that have been stronger in the closing? Uh, Who knows? We'll find out here. But I thought that was a unique and and powerful message. Uh, distinction that she found early and stayed with it and was consistent with uh, and probably helped her.
0: Right. Anything else we should be thinking about as we go into these last days before the caucuses?
3: I think it's okay that it's this close. These are good candidates. They're experienced people. They've built strong organizations. This has been a campaign, for the most part, that has been Absent of major tactical errors, certainly of anything untoward or uh, disingenuous, this has been a, these have been well run campaigns for the most part. And those candidates that are still in it from this field of four hundred and ninety two people that has been now down to roughly a dozen people, they've run strong organizations, and it's okay that it's close at this point in the early states. And I think it's important to think through the the phase from the early state phase as we gear up towards Super Tuesday. The fact remains that Iowa made these candidates better, sharpened their message, improved their organizations, uh, and gave some of them a chance to break through. And ultimately, that's what Iowa's
0: about. Matt Paul, thank you. Thank you. Matt Paul is Senior Vice President of Cornerstone Public Affairs. So far this hour, we've been talking all about the Iowa caucuses, how they work, and why this state gets to go first. Now, not everyone in Iowa thinks the state should remain atop the primary calendar, but let's be honest. Iowans have a vested interest in going first. We wanted to know how people outside the state feel, so we asked
4: you. I don't have a problem with Iowa being first and then New Hampshire. Perhaps the media could
3: stop trying to predict the outcome from the first two selection events. This is Teresa Weaver from Kingfisher,
0: Oklahoma. Hi, this is Andrea calling from Philadelphia. Should Iowa be the first state to caucus? No. Small, overwhelmingly white Midwestern state is hardly an appropriate bellwether for America in 2020. Of course, it never was appropriate. But now we can say that out loud. And we should. Hi. Every state
5: should have their caucuses, primaries, whatever, on the same day. Then the opinions of our states on the West Coast would not be marginalized. We in Oregon have vote by mail, which works great. There is absolutely no reason people in Iowa should have a stronger voice in our government than everyone else. This is Tina from Woodburn, Oregon. This is
2: Max from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. It is my understanding that the caucuses are always in Iowa because of tradition. My question is, why Why not choose an underrepresented state each time, uh, kind of like the Olympics?
5: This is Marianne from Terrytown. Caucuses are seriously overrated. How do we get out from under this terrible process? and in particular, the Electoral College. Let's include that as well. Hello, this is Carl Kirster from Sacramento, California. Iowa should remain the same for traditional reasons, just to keep doing things the way that we have been. Hi, this is George from Berkeley, Massachusetts.
1: No, I don't think Iowa should be the first state to caucus. I just think that they're nothing like the rest of the country.
5: This is Mary Ann from Terrytown. Caucuses are seriously overrated. How do we get out from under this terrible
1: process?
4: No, I'm sick of my vote not counting for anything. The first caucuses should be in states more representative of nationwide demographics. Like New York, California, Texas, and Illinois or a different Midwest state should all go first together. This is Kara in Hawthorne, New Jersey.
0: We always love to hear from you. If you want to weigh in, you can share your thoughts anytime. Leave us a message at 8778-MY-TAKE, or you can tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. For me, on caucus night, I'll be in Des Moines and part of the PBS NewsHour's coverage of the caucuses. We'll be set up at Drake University, and aside from doing my best to stay warm, there are a few things I'll be watching for specifically. The first is, which is going to win out, the head or the heart? Joe Biden is going directly at voters' heads with a message that says beating Trump is the number one priority for 2020. And he believes he's the only candidate who can do this. Sanders, meanwhile, is aiming for voters' hearts, telling voters they can and should demand big, bold things from leaders. The three other candidates in the top tier, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, are trying to straddle these two polls with a focus on beating Trump, but also one that stresses generational change, gender and Midwestern grit. Now, normally, candidates who pitch electability, i.e., vote with your head, fall short. After all, what gets someone to show up on a cold night in February is passion, not pragmatism. But Trump and the prospect of beating him may be all the motivation voters need to support the so-called practical choice. I'll also be watching how certain parts of the state vote. A lot of attention will be on eastern Iowa and the counties that hug the Mississippi River— These blue collar areas flipped from Obama to Trump in 2016. And I'll be paying close attention to the suburbs around Des Moines. These fast growing areas flipped Democrats in 2018, and the freshman Democrat who represents that area recently endorsed Joe Biden. not that long ago, the idea that laws to restrict gun rights would not only pass the Virginia legislature, but would also be broadly popular in the Commonwealth was unthinkable. But that's exactly what happened this week when the Democratic-controlled Virginia legislature passed several gun control bills. Now, the conventional wisdom back in the early part of the 2000s was that a Democrat can only get so far by upsetting the NRA. So what changed? Well, in a nutshell, the suburbs. As suburban D.C. expanded further into once-rural areas of the state, issues like gun control have become an asset, not a liability to Democrats. Driving much of the change in support for gun restrictions are female suburban voters. Where do you get a gun? When I was growing up, you didn't see them. Okay. Now everybody has them, my friends. Children have been in
5: crossfire shootings. Their lives have just been destroyed.
0: Somehow the wrong people are getting them. These voters have been a long-sought-after political commodity, and in 2018, many of them voted for Democrats in once-Republican strongholds like Orange County, California and Atlanta, Georgia. To get a more nuanced understanding of how these women are processing the gun issue, I traveled to Philadelphia the other week and sat in on a focus group of white suburban women in Philadelphia. This focus group was conducted by the anti-gun violence group Giffords, founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. I was struck by how their growing concern for the issue of gun safety was also butting up against the reality of their lived experiences. This week, I talked to Peter Ambler, the Giffords' executive director, to hear how the organization was approaching gun control as a political issue come November.
1: I think you have to start off by understanding that, you know, fundamentally this issue is about seven years old. In the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, Americans for the first time in decades— you know, um, were catalyzed into outrage over the inaction that their government, their political leaders um, were tolerating on the issue of gun safety. Over the next uh, few years after that, you know, our organization, Gabby Giffords and the rest of the team at Giffords worked to educate Americans about the problem of gun violence, the fact that it was tied to our weak gun laws and the fact that we had weak gun laws because um, our political system, politicians at that time on both sides of the aisle, um, were being controlled by the NRA and the gun lobby. I think finally in twenty eighteen, we brought this idea to market that you know gun safety was a political issue that concerned and frustrated Americans were going to vote on. It was going to be um, elevated in terms of their uh, the, the the issues that they voted on and it was going to fundamentally decide uh, races for Congress, for state legislature, for Senate and hopefully in 2020 for president of the United States.
0: Let me zone in a little bit more on this issue because it seems to me that the ground that the issue um, of gun safety is gaining in and around the suburbs – is it making its way into more rural parts of the state. And so we're seeing places like Virginia that, on the one hand, is has a democratic legislature. It's an increasingly suburbanized state. And the legislature now passing a whole slew of gun rights measures. And at the same time, you have, in the rural stretches of the state, all these so-called sanctuary gun cities. So does it just mean that the issue of guns just is more more polarized, but that it's still difficult to get legislation passed because, like the country, we are really divided.
1: I don't think we're actually that divided. Um, I think if you look at the gun rights protests that you saw in Richmond uh, a a couple weeks ago on Martin Luther King Day of all days, um, you only need to compare that to the progress that we've made in the legislature in the weeks since the House of Delegates voted through seven different gun safety bills, including universal background checks, our top policy priority. It's because they fundamentally have a mandate from the voters. For the past four election cycles, since the very first days of the Giffords organization, we have been investing in the state of Virginia. Um, We helped elect Terry McAuliffe and every other statewide elected official since on the issue of gun safety. We've invested in the um, you know, House delegates in the state Senate over the years, of course, including here in 2019. And that culminated in a powerful election, right, where not only did we elect gun safety majorities um, to both chambers of the legislature, but we did it with polling showing that guns was the most important issue, the number one most important issue for all voters. In terms of where can we Democrats and Republicans actually go on the offense on this issue and use it as a sort of cudgel against their opponents who vote against the safety of kids and communities and take contributions from the NRA. Um, you know, th- that's going to be more salient in you know, more sort of suburban areas. But if you look at you know, Manchin in West Virginia, if you look at John Tester in Montana, you see Democrats who have strong gun safety records um, running and winning um, in more sort of rural states that are um, have more you know conservative uh,
0: politics you know I sat in on these focus groups of these white suburban Philadelphia women, and one thing that really struck me was how many of them talked about their concern about mass shootings about gun violence, but they also had a really big concern about talking about these issues with the people in their lives. And usually they were men, their husbands or their dads or their grandparents who had guns. And their view was, once you start talking about the issue of gun laws or gun control, these guys instantly think, you're taking away my guns. And so when we do that, they shut down and the conversation about guns is over
1: you know, we picked a pretty tough audience on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. These are voters who are undecided um, in the presidential contest. Um, they lean moderate and conservative. So they are going to be tough for, you know, any issue that runs left of left of center to get um, on board on, with a particular candidate on a particular issue. There were cross currents in, in, in that conversation. For the most part, you saw... Um, the participants in these groups using our sort of basic message framework, using our talking points, um, thinking um, via the general sort of frame on this issue that Giffords employs, you had fewer people um, than you certainly would have had in the past just a few years ago, blaming sort of exogenous uh, societal factors like mental health or poverty or video games or anything like that for gun violence, pointing their um, finger you know, squarely at our weak gun laws and the political corruption that the NRA and the gun lobby contributes to.
0: What does this mean for when we think about the 2020 election?
1: Well, 2020 is going to be a very big year for us. As you saw in 2018, um, we were able to help elect Democrats from coast to coast in these suburban districts. We beat 40 NRA-backed Republican incumbents elected in their place a new Congress, a new House of Representatives, a majority with a mandate to take action on gun safety. They did. They passed universal background checks and other measures. Um, Now we have to complete the arc, um, and we're going to fight to um, elect a gun safety Senate, um, and we are going to frame a uh, stark choice for Americans um, between Donald Trump, who has stood with the NRA and the gun lobby and opposed life-saving gun safety legislation, despite the fact that kids keep dying in their classrooms and in their neighborhoods and in their homes with a positive gun safety vision um, that comes from whoever the Democratic nominee is.
0: Peter Ambler, thanks so much for coming and talking with me. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Amy. Thank you.
0: Peter Ambler is executive director of Giffords. That's all for us today. The people who make this show... Our producers, Patricia Jacob, board operator and engineer, Debbie Daughtry, sound designer and director, and all-around cool guy, Jay Cowett, digital editor, Polly Urungu, David Gable is our executive assistant, and finally, our fearless leader and senior producer, Amber Hall, and a special thanks to Lee Hill as well. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877 my take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.